Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Penny Durham. Today I'm in Glebe in Sydney at the Wilcock Institute for Medical Research for everything that's respiratory and sleep related. And I'm talking to Associate Professor Ewan Tovey. Um, Ewan, good morning. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, good morning, Penny. Um, I retired uh, five years ago from the Wilcock Institute. I had previously run the allergen group here and that gradually morphed into a group which was interested in respiratory viruses and their role in asthma. So I'd be I started to work a lot with virologists, so I, I, I picked up expert, some form of expertise in, in viruses as well. Um, but now, as I said, I'm retired, but I've remained very interested in some aspects of this topic. There's another area that you've um, recently been acquiring some expertise in, or certainly doing a lot of research in, and that's the 1918-19 to 19 influenza pandemic, uh, and particularly what happened on its arrival in Australia. First of all, can you tell us um, a bit of background why you've been researching this lately? Well, I, beca- I became interested... Well, my wife's a writer, and she's written a book on children's book called 1918, so I, I was, became very interested in what happened and went to Villa Greta and all those sorts of things, became pretty interested in the war, um, First World War, and Australians in the First World War. Um, but I became... Because of my background and in, uh, interest in influenza and pandemic influenza, I became more interested in what happened in Australia um, and in New Zealand um, d- during 1918 and 19 because both countries um, had quite interesting and different patterns of infections um, to pandemic influenza over that period. So New Zealand had really made, New Zealand was pretty slack. It was, had a very relaxed attitude, didn't make much effort to stop infected ships coming back. The main waves went through Europe, mm, probably the middle of 1918, but it was stretched over a period of time, obviously. But the, the waves hit New Zealand, brought back by ships, obviously, really started in New Zealand in roughly October, and by November, really over about a 12-week period, they had horrendous deaths in New Zealand. Different estimates, maybe 7,000, 8,000, maybe more, because um, some of the Maori communities were not... It was difficult to get data, and it had very high fatality rates within Maori communities. Mm. Um, so New Zealand had a horrendous death toll over a period of about 12 weeks from pandemic influenza. Australia, however, was quite different. And Australia recognised, had some very good public health people, quite new, the quarantine department was pretty new. They saw this coming and they set up very rigorous quarantine in Australia. So they built quarantine stations at the main ports of entry, eight of them, and they were all equipped with hospitals and nurses and orderlies and everything you needed. And all ships coming in were heavily quarantined. And they basically prevented the disease coming into Australia. There were deaths, or some deaths, in the quarantine stations, and including a, a nurse who wasn't allowed to be given the last rites, which caused great conflict with the Catholic Church mm. at the time. There was very strong quarantine enforced. And then it's controversial whether it first broke in Victoria or in New South Wales. Probably the consensus view is that it broke in Victoria, probably the middle of January. The cases started to appear in public, but they weren't admitted to by the government of Victoria. And so the regulations that had been put in place about how the country, what the response was going to be weren't triggered. And so people moved from Victoria to New South Wales, or at least one case appeared in New South Wales. And New South Wales people, you know, blame Victorians for this, the rivalry between the two. And then the cat was out of the bag and it gradually spread. So there were two waves in New South Wales and there were three waves in Victoria and the whole thing was over roughly by about August. Uh, but the second wave in New South Wales was the, by far the larger wave. There were two waves here, though. A few things that are interesting. So the, the pandemic was blocked largely by this um, quarantining that went on, and Australia had probably the lowest rate of infectivity um, of any of the Commonwealth countries. It was 
probably roughly half or less of New Zealand and Britain and Tasmania um, kept the quarantine going. Tasmania had the lowest percentage number of people with influenza for any country in the world that got pandemic mm. influenza. So a few countries didn't get it at all, mm. and like uh, Western Samoa, which was ruled by the Americans at that stage, who had total quarantine, and places like New Guinea and New Caledonia, they all had total quarantines and they didn't get the flu. I read some um, like infection rates varied from as widely as maybe one per thousand to six per thousand in New Zealand and up to a horrendous 200 per thousand in Samoa, so not the American Samoa, but the other. Yes, that's right. Indigenous people, and same in Australia, we don't know. And we don't even know how many Aboriginal people died from it because they weren't even counted. Well, we we do know that very large numbers in in isolated communities do. The Fremantle Mm. Prison, I think most of the inmates there, which was an Aboriginal prison, many of them died there, the majority, as far as I know, the majority of them died. So, but... Um, averages were not counted. Well, so in some cases, they were not counted amongst the death statistics, as far as I understand. Um, but your yeah, rates varied greatly, and that's always very interesting to what stops people um, succumbing to those sorts of infections. And Australia had had quite a severe influenza pandemic in the preceding year, in 1918. Um, schools were closed, but it wasn't a path- it wasn't a pathogenic one, so people didn't tended not to die. It was no different than normal, but it may have increased community resistance. In fact, that's why Victoria said it was slow to respond, because they thought it was just a resurgence of the earlier one that had been through. Um, in fact, it was the, uh, a much more pathogenic lethal strain. Yeah, the epidemiology is quite a complex one, and there are lots of strange factors to it that made it unusual for an influenza. But um, this is 1919. Um, can you talk a bit about that W-shaped curve? That is, Usually an influenza will be worse for very young children, very old people, Mm. but this pandemic infected young, healthy adults Mm. much more than usual. Do we know why that was? Well, there's certainly theories about why that was. They say it kills the very young and the very old, typically. Um, And in this case, there was, as you say, there was this middle peak of people. So influenza kills probably in two separate different ways. The first way is you get this acute firemia, so that very acute, strong, powerful response to the virus and that can certainly kill you and people died very quickly they their skin often changed color they went blue they went reddish sort of mottled skin infection yeah, blood came from orifices crackly skin as well I've heard. I haven't heard the crackly skin but I've heard of hair falling out oh. there was some local hospital in Lismore had an entire pillowcase stuffed with hair oh from people their hair came out a very profound immune response so it's oh. sort of like a cytokine storm mm. um, an over response of the body's immune system and just hemolysis and so it's a horrendous response but the second as this does damage to the lung and then you get secondary infections and so it's argued which caused the greater number of deaths and certainly some people seem to think it was really the secondary bacterial infections and the pneumonias which followed uh, which were the greater cause of death but they, they both were you know fatal. Yeah and they didn't have obviously a, a flu vaccine at that time but they were um, inoculating people against those secondary bacterial infections. Absolutely and that was uh, uh, amazing sort of thing that occurred and it started in about August and it went through to about March I think it was that the idea that we should vaccinate they didn't know precisely what it was but they cultured a whole lot of different sorts of bacteria from the lungs and from the airways of people and from the pathology department at the University of Sydney and they got a CSL threw in some stuff into the mix and so they made up this mixture of different bacteria argued over what it might have been and made up vaccines, there was no animal testing, there was no human testing, and they just put it out there in the public and people were demanding to be vaccinated. And 
numbers vary, but perhaps third to a half of the population of New South Wales wanted vac- or had and wanted vaccinations, and it probably it made no difference to the flu um, in terms of whether you got the flu or not. Um, but it probably made a difference to whether you died from the flu because it prevented you from that second way of dying, or it helped prevent secondary bacterial infections, at least fatal sorts. So it. Actually, it probably did work. And remember, we're dealing in a time when there were no effective antibiotics. So mm-hmm. now we have a lot of antibiotics and they're widely available. So we're probably much better at preventing those secondary infections. But it really wasn't until the 30s that we had effective antibiotics that could have been used. And the response um, didn't go quite as smoothly in Australia as, you know, as perhaps it might have. There was a lot of political fighting mm. and indeed in the end all the, the various governments all went their own separate ways. That's right, they? yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, the, um, the, the, there was a big meetings in November and there was committees and people gathered and, and discussed how they would do that and was a federal and a state plan. But really once the flu arrived, um, then it was every state for itself. Um, but there were borders, uh, sorry, there were um, stations you weren't allowed to cross borders, you had to be quarantined at borders, and there was more than 100 people arrested for swimming the Murray River to try and... <laughs> um, so people did try and, you know, slip through, um, mm. but it, the, the, the coordination of the plan fell apart. But the, the, court, the plans at community level, can I talk mm. about that? Because it was incredibly good. There was... The, the, so the, at a community level, people were organised to self-isolate. So if a case of flu occurred within your symptoms, someone got symptoms in your family, the whole family was put into quarantine and you were given a sign, you either put up a yellow flag or you, there was a sign you cut out of the newspaper with SOS written on it and that signalled that you had the flu in that house and you were now in lockdown. That was reported to the local council. The local council then organised to send you free food and free firewood and this was delivered to your doorstep. The person knocked on the door and then left. They weren't. There was no physical contact between the deliverer, and that was organised by the Boy Scouts and the Red Cross and other community organisations. So you were fed and you were isolated. Hmm. Um, and there was brochures, you know, given all houses got brochures about what to do and in terms of if you got flu. So at a community level, we were very good at organising. Well, the schools were closed yeah. and places of public entertainment were closed. So race courses, theatres... All those sorts of things were closed. Um, and if your job um, was affected by that, you suffered financial loss, then there was government compensation. And a lot of people applied for that and received. There was a lot of money spent by the government compensating people for lost wages because they closed their business. They had good, they, they attempted to do very good contact tracing of where people have been and who they've been exposed to. And there was a telephone hotline set up. So if you had a phone, if you were lucky and had a phone, or had access to a phone, you could phone up and say there's somebody in this family with the flu, and that would also trigger a response. Really, given the time, it was an incredibly effective way of preventing the transmission in the community. And there was a, maybe it was post-war, but there was a lot of community spirit going on. People were pretty organised and responded well overall to this. That's quite incredible. Like, it sounds like a really sophisticated response and that, well, at least at community level, the public really was taken along with that. I, I think, you know, as we have seen happening at, at the moment in China and in Japan and in Korea and these other countries where they, where they do have some cases of, of um, COVID-19, um, th- there is a, a strong public response to want to do something, whether it's fear or whether it's, you know, w- whatever it is, but people do tend to follow instructions a lot on those matters and enforce them. It's probably good they didn't have Twitter back then. <laughs> probably is, yeah, let alone TikTok. Look, it's, um, uh, would have, it was an incredibly ferocious epidemic and it would have been really frightening, so... 
let's hope we don't see another pandemic quite of that magnitude again. Yes, it's a different society now, so we will have to respond differently. We fly much more, but we have better drugs, better diagnostics. So, you know, there's pros and cons on both sides. If we do have, if, we're, if it's not this pandemic, there will be other pandemics. You know, nature's just tossing cards on the, Gia is just sure tossing is. cards on the table saying, play that one, guys. Uh, it's not a flu, it's a coronavirus. And who knows what, you know, bats are carrying or they've got okay. a lot of viruses in them. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there are lessons to be learned all along the way, even from 100 years ago. We, we need to do more research in terms of how to protect populations, in terms of ha- how we organise, and, and really the structure of our response, I think, is important. I think if there are two lessons that come out of this, firstly, you need clear leadership. This is what we're going to do. We need a really good plan, thought-through plan, which is a well-funded plan, and we implement that plan. The second thing is that was really important is that the priority was given to community health rather than preservation of the of the economy of mm-hmm. jobs and so we were we were prepared to close down schools factories or whatever was needed but you know we went on to sort of a wartime footing about how as a community we're going to prevent it because when you think of it the way to stop these pandemics i mean it's all very nice to have research and say we'll have a vaccine and, and all those things are great and work you know but really it's the community response and how you isolate and how you set up quarantine. As you can see in China, the, it looks like the rates are dropping. That is a phenomenal achievement. People should take their hats off and say they appear to have done a really good job of isolating. If they do, you know, at the moment it's running at something like 70,000. If they can isolate that, that is an extraordinary public health response. Um, and even if it slows it down, maybe that's all you can do. Like Australia slowed down the influenza 100 and so years ago, but that it gave us enough time. The death rate would have been twice that if it had arrived in 1918. But it arrived in 1919, we seemed to slow down its spread in the community, and that saved a lot of lives. It really works. Mm. Well, Mr. Toby, thank you very much for talking to us today. Oh, okay.